This morning is the second message in the Talmudim series. Today we're going to preach on attach, dedicated to devotion. I'm excited. I feel like Jeremiah where he said, the word of God is like fire shut up in my bones. I believe the Lord is going to move in this place. He is going to come like a pent-up flood. And I'm going to tell you something. When a pent-up flood releases, you can't do anything but succumb to it. Amen? Open up your Bibles to Mark 3, 13 through 14. Say there when you are there. Everybody there? Jesus went up on a mountaintop and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. Everybody say, be with him. This morning, we are going to take a deep look into what it means to be a disciple. Last Wednesday night, our brother, Nick Aragina, brought us a soul-stirring word about the beginnings of this lifestyle. To quote Nick, he said, If we cannot fully grasp the take-in process, then we will not be able to continue along the path of discipleship. Did that stir you? Yes. Did that word stir anybody in this house? Yes. I found myself saying, just like the two men that walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked and opened the scriptures to us? Any of us feel that in this house? Yes. That was a soul-stirring word, Nick. We must successfully give everything we are and have into the hands of our teacher, Jesus Christ. Amen. We must dedicate ourselves fully to the following and learning after him. We must abandon all pursuits of all other things so that we may focus ourselves on this one task, to be his disciples. Amen. Anybody want to be a disciple in this house? Yes. Do you want to be his? Yes. Do you want to be like him? Yes. Come on. I want to be just like him in every way. Then we must attach ourselves to him and the men who are called by him. This morning, we are going to learn about the inseparable bond that exists between a teacher and a disciple. Come on. We are going to teach you the principles that will answer the questions that have been plaguing the church since the, since the beginning, such as, how devoted should I be? Do I really need to be where my pastors are? Do I need to be at every meeting? How much freedom do I have to live my life as I see fit? Can I thrive without being attached to a man, a woman, a family, or a body? Is that possible? Is church attendance equivalent to discipleship? When asked, who discipled you? Do you respond with your Wednesday and Sunday participation only? It is impossible to be discipled from a pulpit. Before we continue, we need to acknowledge a few things that we have said against us. We live in a very biblically retarded society. For example, when the word talks about such things as food or eating, or building, or livestock. We don't understand those things, do we? 
We live in a culture where we do not grow our own food. We do not have to kill animals to eat meat. We do not have to build our own homes, nor do we raise livestock. Psalm 23 takes on a different feel for us due to those reasons. We have to try to engage ourselves into the culture that surrounded the biblical authors and strain to capture the illusion of the first time. When we separate ourselves from this present popular American culture that we live in, we see that there are vast differences in the lives of the first century audience and ours. You guys learn about that Friday night? Acts 1 class? Anybody here? There is a filter in between us and the first century audience. I will call attention primarily to the attachment this morning between a teacher and his disciple. Imagine yourselves. Do this with me right now. I want you to imagine for a bit that you're living in a different world. Imagine yourselves living in a world where there was no YouTube, no Google, no easy way to gain knowledge for yourself. What about no widely available literature or books? Folks, we're thinking of a time where there wasn't a printing press. The New Testament churches had to pass along handwritten copies of single letters, and often the synagogues were the only places you could find a Tanakh. Think about that. There wasn't even a New Testament. There was just an Old Testament, and the only time that you could hear from it is at a synagogue. Most of the time. What if you could not learn to do many of the tasks that we know from the comfort of our homes or in the leisure of your offices? What if you couldn't run to the internet to simply find out how to do a task? What if you couldn't just pop open a book and learn anything you wanted to in the moment? What would you do? You would have to attach yourselves to someone who has already mastered the way of life that you desire. This doesn't just apply to spiritual teachings. Every profession, such as carpenters, farmers, doctors, fishermen... They all had to attach themselves to someone who had mastered the profession which they seek. Think about that for a second. What kind of culture would that be? Do you think that the bond between a teacher and a a disciple was more precious then or now? Come on. Was it more precious then or now? Then. Then. They needed their teacher. Think, Think for a second what we've learned about just the, just the Talmud, just the, the rabbinical teachings, just the traditions of the Jewish fathers had to be handed down orally, had to be handed down speaking to a disciple. Otherwise, they couldn't learn it. What would that cause these men to do? They had to follow the rabbis. As we dig in, we are going to throw away our present view of costless, meaningless, and unintentional discipleship and embrace the biblical path that calls for our attachment to our rabbi. Do you want to embrace that path? Yes. Amen. Then let us continue. Let's read back in Mark 3, 13 through 14. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve designating them apostles, that they might what? Be with him, him, and that he might send them out to preach. Why did Jesus call these men to himself? So that they could be with him. So that they could be with him. 
Does that strike you? That Jesus wanted the disciples to be with him? He wanted to spend time with them and invest in them. I don't know about you, but for me, that's comforting. You see, for the addicts, for the sinners and the wicked, there are men that God has given that want to be with you. There are men given to you that are stronger with you, stronger than you, that you can tether yourself with and you can become like them. Is that hope for you this morning? Yes. Do you find yourself like Job 34, verse 32, saying, teach me what I cannot see? Oh, come on. Does anybody want to be taught? Do you need a teacher in this place this morning? Teach me what I cannot see. If I have done wrong, I will not do so again. Does anyone want to be taught? If you're like me, wrapped up, sometimes, sometimes can't move your feet. It is a comforting thought that somebody stronger than you would want to be with you so that you can learn from them. I want you to remember, do you want to be tethered? Just remember you said that. What was Jesus calling his disciples from? I believe we can gain insight to the type of attachment needed to to these rabbis, to these teachers, learning what Jesus called these disciples from. Turn with me to Matthew 4, verse 20. Matthew 4, verse 20. At once, everyone say at once, once. they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Who were they with? The The father. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. When did they leave? Immediately. Immediately. Something to note here is that they left one form of discipleship and moved on to a greater discipleship. You see, men may be discipled by their fathers, their earthly fathers, but they are called to move on to something greater. I think about men in this room like Michael, Hall, Brenton, Vincent, Gabe Sutherland, Gabe Stevens, Timo, Jacob Kelsky, and many, many more being discipled faithfully by their fathers, but they are called to move on to a greater discipleship. This brings to remembrance 1 Kings 19. Everyone turn there with me. 1 you see, those men had learned a profession. They had spent time being diligent to learning a trade. And Jesus called them to abandon that to come to himself. Do you think Jesus would expect any less? Not at all. Everyone in 1 Kings 19? Turn to verse 16 when you get there. Verse 16 says, Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. You see, this is spoken to Elijah. And Elijah was supposed to anoint Elisha to succeed himself. At the time, was there any prophet greater than Elijah? No. And he, he was told to anoint Elisha to succeed him. That's incredible, isn't it? You want to know who didn't know that? Elisha. Elisha didn't know that. 
Most of the time, we cannot comprehend what God has in store for us. You see, we don't know exactly what the final outcome of our lives will be, but we must carry on. Verse 17, Jehu will be put to death. Any, Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. What was Elisha doing? Plowing. He was working. He was doing the profession which he had been trained to do. Is it an easy thing to plow? Can any of you do it now? I don't know how to plow. Elisha had to learn this trade. Obviously, Elisha had a developed life. He had 12 pairs of oxen. Think about it for a second. If any of you in this room had an oxen, would you value it? Probably not as much as you value your car, though. You see, we have to think with the illusion of the first time. An ox is a very valuable thing in this time and day. And Elisha had 12 pairs. How valuable was it that what he was doing? What kind of possessions did Elisha have? We also have to presume that his father had discipled him. Because where else did he learn that trade? Look what Elijah does. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. He threw his cloak around him. That is symbolic as to throwing his commands over Elisha, throwing his mantle onto Elisha, throwing his everything that Elijah is onto his next disciple. Verse 20, Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? It's a good question. So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. What did Elisha do with it? He burned it all. He burned all of the provisions that he had mustered up. He burned all of his livelihood. He left his life behind and he followed the man that was, that was going to disciple him. Mind you that little did he know he was going to succeed him as prophet. In his mind, he must have just not sure what was going on, but it was an honor to follow this man. He considered it such an honor that he burned his life. He burned his previous way. Have you done that in this room? Have you so attached yourselves to Jesus and the men around you that you are willing to burn everything that you have? You are willing to burn up your previous life, all of your possessions, all of your provisions. You have to burn down your lifestyle to take on another. You cannot have both. Be careful of the men that say, you don't, no, 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 don't burn any bridges now. I say you must burn those bridges. You must sever those ties that you have with your previous life. Otherwise, you cannot continue. You cannot be attached to the next one. What did it say about Elisha? He set out to follow Elijah and became his what? His attendant. (laughs) He didn't become his advisor. 
He became his attendant. Attendant. He was called to succeed him as prophet. How many of you would be willing to abandon your lifestyle, burn down your provisions, burn down everything you have to go be an attendant to the man of God that you are supposed to follow? That's attachment, folks. That is how you attach yourself right there. You burn down everything you have and then you become the man of God's attendant. You watch him. You learn from him. As I said before, these men had a profession, a lifestyle, something that they had spent years training in and trying to perfect. Jesus shows up on the scene and called them to transfer all of their dedication to himself. That same dedication you had for the world, you're supposed to transfer it to Jesus. You're supposed to take that dedication and bring it right into Jesus' lap and say, do what you will with my time. Do what you will with my devotion. My life is yours. Isn't that a radical way of life? Isn't that bizarre even to think in this day and age, what would people say about you? Oh, that's a cult. That's not the way it's supposed to be done. You're supposed to raise up your family. You're supposed to keep a little from yourself. You know, big up, build up bigger barns. Make sure you've got a retirement, a 401k, a good job. No. The calling that Jesus has on your life is to abandon it all and attach yourself to him. Turn with me to Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. going to get better. I'd like to say we're going to get down and dirty this morning. Everybody in Matthew 11? Jesus is speaking some of the most beautiful words that, that can be said here. Think of yourselves in a time of darkness, in a time of trial, in a time of, of, of severe loss even, in a time of, of confusion maybe being purposeless, like a sheep without a shepherd, and Jesus comes on the scene and speaks these words to you. Verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Isn't that comforting? Didn't we get a prophecy this morning that the Lord was going to give us rest from all of our enemies? Who will you get it from? One source. Verse 29, Take my what? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Take my yoke. It's another reference to farming that we just don't get because we don't live in that time. A yoke is something that you would put on oxen. You would place it on oxen so that they can pull a plow. Jesus is referencing this to himself, that he has a yoke that you must get in. What is this yoke he speaks of? Turn with me to Hebrews 13, verse 7 through 8. Hebrews 13, verse 7 through 8. In verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This yoke we're speaking of is a way of life. It's a way of life, church. A way of life. Attachment is not striving... Sorry. Attachment is striving to become like your teacher. Not just knowing what he knows or speaking like he speaks, but to become like him in every way. That is what it means to take on Jesus' yoke. That you you want to live... Like Jesus lived. 
brings to mind a very specific passage that says, if any man is in Christ, he ought to walk as Jesus walked. We're going to give a little bit of a cultural background as to the yoke we're speaking of, as to the way of life that we must attach to. Turn with me to Joshua 1, verse 7. Joshua 1, verse 7. Verse 7 says, Be strong and very courageous. Rock Kazak. Be careful to obey all the law my my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Say successful. Successful. If you want to be successful, stop reading Facebook, stop reading Joel Osteen, stop reading (laughs) philosophical books. Obey all of the law that Moses gave you. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate, it, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to what? Do. Not just meditate. The end goal of meditation is that you do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. One of the greatest Jewish sages, Moshe Maimonides, or Rambam, said about this verse, Every person in Israel is obligated to be engaged in Torah learning. Whether one is poor or wealthy, whether one is, in, is whole in body or afflicted with suffering, whether one is young or old, feeble or even poor, who is supported by charity and goes from door to door seeking benevolence, even the man supporting his wife and children, Everyone is required to find a set time during the day and the night to study Torah. And it was said, you shall go over it again and again, day and night. You see, the Jews, seeing this, created a culture where the most important thing in their culture was Torah study. They revered Torah study so much that they said if someone could not professionally study Torah, then perhaps they could become a lawyer or perhaps they can become a doctor. Torah study was so revered in that culture. What would a culture that is immersing themselves in the word, that realizes God tells them that they can keep the land that they're going into only if they obey the commandments, what would they do with the commandments? They would develop a culture around it. They would build a fence around it and guard it carefully with their hearts. Josephus remarked about this. He said, education, about education, that it wasn't seen as a luxury or even as an option. Education was the key to survival. The Torah was seen as so central to life that if you lost it, you lost everything. He then added these words, Above all else, we pride ourselves in the education of our children. That is the culture that we must immerse ourselves in. The culture that is striving to teach our children Torah. And many of you are doing very well of that. But we need to up it up a notch. We need to bring it up a notch. Jewish culture was built around Torah study and a way of life. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 11, verse 18 through 23. A passage we are very familiar with. Remember, we learned to wrap our hands with the word of God. Verse 18 says, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Does that seem silly? Would you walk around with the word of God tied to your forehead in your workplace? 
Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So that your days and the days of your who? Children may be many in the land that the Lord swore to give your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Verse 22, if you carefully observe, everybody say carefully observe. observe. Not just carelessly observe, not half-heartedly observe. If you carefully observe, if you pay stringent attention, strict detail to the commands that the Lord gives you, To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him. Go to the next verse. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you. And you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than yourselves. We heard a prophecy this morning that God wants to put you on. He wants to wear you like a glove. He wants you to be his war club and shatter nations. How do we muster that kind of strength and courage? By carefully observing his commands. Now the question among the rabbis, the teachers of Jesus' day, was how young do you begin teaching the Bible, the Torah, to children? In Bhava Bhaktra, a tractate from the Mishnah, it says, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. Well, that'll preach, won't it? At the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. They don't look at a child and say, well, he can't understand. He's too young. It starts at a very, very early young age. From six upwards, accept him and stuff him with Torah like an ox. You see, the parents are the initial instructor in this process. The parents are actively involved in stuffing their children as an ox. Let that be a charge to you, parents. Let that be a charge to myself. It is our duty to stuff our children with Torah, with the Word of God. Turn with me to Psalm 78, verse 1 through 8. It's a good word, brother. Psalm 78, verse 1 says, O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. Who told it? The very first thing that a child grows into, into watching and trying to become like, is their father. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. Are you telling your children the things of God that have been given to you by the Lord? We will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children. What did He command? To teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commands. What would they do? Keep His commands. There's a fear that runs rampant that says if you expose, if you you involve yourself too far into this discipleship process, your kids will not grow up the way that they're supposed to. 
says right here that if you involve them, if you teach them, they will grow up to keep the commands of God. You as a parent, you must have the resolve and the vigor to stand up and say, I will have no influence in my home other than the word of God. What's the result if you don't do that? Look at verse 8. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. Can't you see that this process has to start with children? If we fail to do what we are supposed to do, our children will grow up and to be a rebellious generation. You see, the problem with, with this country, problem with this age, is not that we don't have enough of what we, what we want. We don't have enough pleasures. It's not that we don't have enough iPhones. We don't have enough Xboxes. We don't have enough video games. It's that we are not teaching the next generation the Word of God and living it out in front of them so that we can be an example to them. That is the problem. That is why we have consecutive generations from the very beginning of this country headed straight into decline, headed straight into moral filth, into a flood of dissipation because we have failed to teach them the Word of God. We have to create a culture where Torah study, where Tanakh study, where Brit Hadashah study is everything to us. Where the, man, the men who are revered higher than anyone else are the men that know the most of the word and apply it successfully. Yeah. Notice you can't have the first without the second. There's a, there's a popular Talmudic quote that says, He who learns so that he could teach will be empowered to teach. But he who learns so that he will put the word into action will be empowered both to live out a godly life and to teach. Amen. What do you want? Do you want to teach without the power or do you want to live out a godly life? Then we must attach ourselves to the word and to our rabbis and to Jesus himself. Amen. At a very pliable age, the rabbis began to form a way of life that was centered around the word day in and day out, a lifestyle that was beginning to form in them. We've, we've got to bring back this culture this culture that our brothers, the Jews, created. This culture of the Word. The culture of immersing ourselves in the Word and loving the Word. And loving, having joy in fulfilling the Word. We oftentimes look at uh, rabbinic, Talmudic delineations and discussions on the Word and say, "How could that's crazy that they're going that far. But you have to understand something about the Jews. They love to fulfill a command. That's what brings them the most joy. We need to bring that back into this place this morning. That our joy is in fulfilling commands. We have to be pouring the word into our children. We have to be molding them into what they will become. Fathers and mothers, you have to understand something this morning. Your children are destined to become something. What will they become? See... Abraham was chosen in Genesis 18 so that he would direct his household. Yeah. See, God's got something like a 7,000-year battle plan that hinges on what you do with your children. Yeah. If we fail, they fail. In Acts 2, we are learning that God wants to build a house that will defeat the enemy. Our entire church structure is built around this thought. We start with one life, one family, and one nation. In the Jewish culture, they built three houses. The first one started with Bet Sefer, means house of the book. And it was for children ages 6 to 10 years. In that time, they would have the five books, the Torah, the first five books of the, the Bible memorized. 
They built a proper foundation which the succeeding rabbis would be able to build upon. Ask yourself, are you teaching your 6 to 10 year olds a successive foundation, a proper foundation, so that the future rabbis that they encounter will be able to build upon it? I'll ask it again. Are you building a proper foundation in your children's lives, your 6 to 10 year old? Let's just start earlier than that. From the age that they can understand, from the age that they are asking questions, are you building that proper foundation so that successive rabbis will be able to engage them and teach them further and bring them into their destiny? Are you doing that? From there, Bet Sefer, they would move on to Bet Talmud, the house of learning. For ages 10 to 14, the students would learn the 39 books of the Tanakh and the oral traditions, the Talmud. They would learn the Mishnah, all of these books that would take you probably six to eight months to read. These students would take years to learn and memorize. And they would learn the art of questions, responding, understanding what was taken into them and responding with questions. Part, one of the biggest problems with disciples these days is they haven't learned to understand. They haven't learned to take in knowledge, comprehend it, and respond with a proper question that would further the revelation. From 10 to 14, disciples would move on to Bet Midrash, a house of study or understanding. From the ages of 14 to 30, they would learn. They would take on the yoke of the rabbis. They would learn of this way of life that the rabbis lived. They, not enga- they did not only engage the rabbis in the house, in the Bet Midrash, in the Bet Talmud. They did- that's not the only place that they engaged them with. They engaged these rabbis in their daily lives. They saw how they lived. They saw how they responded to difficulties. And they tried to imitate what their rabbi was doing. A fair, I, want, I want you to realize this. If you read the Pirkei Avot, which means ethics of our fathers, the title in and of itself will teach you a lesson as to how Jews view their rabbis. There were... There were quite a few prominent rabbis, but only a very few Bet Midrash students would seek permission to study with a prominent rabbi. These students were called Talmudim, or disciples. These Talmudim didn't just want to study their rabbi's material for a grade. They didn't obey out of respect for the rabbi only. They wanted to become like the rabbi. They wanted to become what the rabbi was. They passionately followed the rabbi to become what he was and eventually become teachers who would pass on that lifestyle to to their students. Think about that for a second. What is your destiny? I hope that it is your destiny in this room to pass on a way of life to your students. That each of you in this room would grow up, like, like the Talmud says, grow up, raise many disciples, and be like Aaron. I pray that all of you in this room would raise up many disciples. Talmud also says that if you raise up disciples, you're a righteous man. A wicked man raises up sinners. What are you living like? Are you living a wicked life? That will transfer unto the people that are under your hearing. Reminds me of exactly what Rabbi Shaul of Tarsus said. Watch your life and doctrine closely so that you will not only save yourself, but your hearers. Are you watching your life and your doctrine closely? You see, these men followed their rabbis hard because they not only wanted to learn the material. Think about that, you Acts students. 
Do you just want to learn the material so that you can be empowered to teach? Or do you want to learn the lifestyle so that you can be empowered to live a godly life and also to teach? Come on. They would passionately follow the rabbi. That means they were with him. What did Jesus call the disciples to be with? Be? With him. He called them to be with them so that he would learn, they would learn his way of life. Are you able to do that in this house or do you have entanglements that trip you up? Turn with me to Numbers 3, verse 1. We're going to further this concept of an attachment between a rabbi and a Talmud. That's singular for Talmudim. Numbers 3 1. Say there when you're there. There. Says, This is the account of the family of Aaron and Moses at the time the Lord talked with Moses on Mount Sinai. The names of the sons of Aaron were Nadab and the firstborn Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Those were the names of Aaron's sons, the anointed priests who were ordained to serve as priests. There's a problem there. I'm wondering if any of you caught it. Think about how you would feel. You just heard this for the first time. You're noticing something about this. It says this is the account of the family of Aaron and Moses. Where are Moses' sons? All that's listed is Aaron's sons. That's interesting, isn't it? Where are Moses' sons? All it says is that Aaron's sons are listed. I want to quote to you what Rashi, another famous rabbi, said about this. These are the offspring of Aaron and Moses, but it mentions only the sons of Aaron. But they are also called the sons of Moses because he taught them Torah. This tells us that whoever teaches the Torah to the son of his fellow man, Scripture regards it to him as though he had begotten him. Wow. You see, whoever teaches you the Word of God is becoming like your father in the faith. Whoever teaches you the Word of God should have a relationship with you as close as a father would have with a son. That is comforting on so many levels, folks. If you haven't had a father, you can look to the one who is trying to teach you Torah and say, I have a father. If you don't have any sons, you can look at at the men who are learning from you and say, I have sons. The man who teaches you Torah is like the one who has begotten you. Turn with me to Proverbs 1.8. Listen to the language that the teacher, Solomon, says here. Proverbs 1.8, verse 8 says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. What would the Peshat be here? The Peshat would be that your earthly, and, earthly father and mother are teaching you. They're giving you instruction. But I think there's a remez here. I think there's a hint somewhere located in this. You see, Solomon wrote this book to many. And he's calling them his son. He's saying that his instruction to them is their father's instruction. And do not forsake your mother's teaching. This could possibly be a derash. But if you read Luke 7.35, it 
It says that wisdom is proved right by her children. What is Proverbs? The book of wisdom. See, the, the Darash, as some would see it, and the Ramez, as others would see it, is hinting at something. That if you are receiving instruction from a teacher, he is your son and he is your mo- she is your mother. The ones who are discipling you are closer to you, or should be, than your father and mother. Paul, a Jewish rabbi, spoke in the same line of this teaching. Turn with me to Philemon 10 through 11. Say there when you're there. This culture has immersed in the handlers of the Older Testament of engaging in Torah study with everything they have and that a a relationship was formed between a discipler and a disciple that was greater than a father and a son. Paul, capitalizing on this, says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I am in chains. Who is Onesimus? Not quite sure. But it says he became Paul's son. Nick last week spoke of a remez that we are born from above. We are born again. Born from above and born to new fathers. When you are born again, God does not leave you fatherless, but he gives you fathers in the faith. He brings you to disciples who take you on as their sons. Turn with me to Matthew 10, verse 37 through 39. It's going to go even further. Still hear some pages turning. I'm going to let you get there because this is getting serious. Jesus is speaking about that relationship, that attachment to him and his disciples. And he says, verse 37, Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Let's just stop there for a second. Has Jesus done something for you in this room? How would you like to be considered not worthy of him? How would you like to be disqualified based on your worldly attachments? You see, Jesus has so much to offer you, so much to offer you, a new way of life, freedom, chain-breaking power, infillings of the Holy Ghost, new gifts in the Spirit, but you you could be considered unworthy based on previous attachments. says, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Oh my gosh, Jesus, are you saying that I have to possibly give up the relationship with my father or my mother? Oh my gosh, Jesus, are you saying that I must, that I may have to give up my relationship to my son or my daughter? You see, what if Jesus is calling you? Will you let your father and mother get in the way? What if Jesus is calling your son or your daughter? Will you let yourself get in the way? Your devotion to Jesus and your teacher should rival that of your father and your mother. You have a devotion. 
Do you have a devotion to someone else that is hindering your discipleship? Do you have entanglements? Do you have people that can yank your chain and say, I need you here at this time and you're not allowed to be at the places you're supposed to be to gain insight from your pastors? Do you have someone or something that you consult before you devote yourselves to your rabbis? Is there something that you consider in your mind before you think about going all in? Say, wait a second, what about my job? What about my finances? I want you to know that your teachers and your rabbis have forsaken them already. So if you want to be like them, you need to learn that. Think about that for a second. Do you have a devotion to someone else that is hindering your discipleship? Do you have entanglements? Something that we are learning in the Treaster household is that previous previous relationships could very well be tools of Satan to hinder you from what you're supposed to become. You all, I don't like to use this word, I kind of do. You all have a destiny in here. You all have a calling. You all have a function. But none of us, None of us will walk in that unless we sever those ties. Amen. Our children have a function and a destiny. And they will never fulfill that unless we let them go. Let's continue on to 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 17. Say there when you're there. Paul, sweet, gentle Paul, elderly, weak, feeble Paul, verse 14, he says, I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, all oh, the heart of every rabbi is not to shame you in this room, but to warn you and spur you on to become who you're supposed to be. Attach yourself to that. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I in Christ Jesus became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to what? Imitate Imitate me. How precious is a father to you? How precious is your earthly fathers, folks? For some of us, not so much. For others, it's the world to us. Paul is taking that on himself and saying, I became your father. I want you to imitate me. How many fathers have you had that says, look, don't do what I do, just do what I say? This rabbi, these rabbis before you in this room, these teachers, Jesus, is not saying, look, turn your head to what I do and just listen to what I say. They're saying to you, imitate me. Come be with me. Learn my way of life. Do you treat those fathers as trivial? Do you? Is it a trivial thing to you that these men are placed before you? Have you heard about the devotion and the things that these men have had to sacrifice and treat them as trivial? As if you have a choice? As if it's not your highest goal to be like them? To be attached Do you spurn them or criticize them? Would you criticize your own father? Would you talk behind your father's back and tell everyone how... 
all of the negative and nasty things you think about your father? Would you put your father in that place? I'm speaking to those who have had good fathers. But to those that don't, is there someone in your life that you revere, you love, you cherish? Would you put them down in front of other people? Or do you desire to take their yoke on yourselves? Do you desire to get in that yoke with those men and pull the weight, to pull the presence of Jesus, to work for Christ? We must at all costs imitate our teachers. Turn with me to Galatians 4, 19 through 20. says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You see, the teacher is pained at your upbringing. The teacher, the rabbi, the men put before you are, are trying as hard as they can to do everything they can so that your life would bear fruit. In Philippians 2, it speaks of holding to the word firmly so that their labor will not be in vain. A rabbi strives to live a life that would spur you on to fulfill your calling. Verse 20, How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Would you be offended in this room if you were Onesimus' father? Would you be offended if another man came and, and stood in and say, I became his father? How about the inverse? Would you be able to leave your father and mother behind to follow another through the gospel? Would you be able to do that? Would you be able to kiss the world behind? I want to say to fathers, it is a gem and a treasure that your children go on to another, go on to a rabbi. You see, like I've spoken to you previously, it was the culture's highest honor that you could study Torah with a prominent rabbi. And I'm sure fathers in villages such as Galilee, small, tiny fishing villages, considered it such a great honor that their child could leave that town. I'm sure they grew up wishing that their child had the opportunity to become something great in the eyes of God. And then Jesus walks along, says, come follow me. Would you be offended if you were John's father? Would you be able to do what John did? Would you be able to leave behind that attachment? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6, 11. In verse 11 it says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. You see, the fathers, the rabbis have given you everything. They have opened up everything to you. They have opened up their homes. They have let you seen into the delicacies of their marriage. They have let you seen everything about their lives, how they raise their children, how they walk this life, how they deal with their finances, how they've dealt with their jobs, how they've dealt with every single aspect of their life. They have let you see that to benefit you. They have opened wide their hearts to you, oftentimes revealing the deepest things that are in their hearts. See, when our fathers and our rabbis lose things, when they lose their possessions, when they lose lawsuits, when they lose their children, they have shared it all with you. What is your return to them? 
They have opened wide their hearts to you. How should you treat them? You should open wide your heart to them. You should share your affection with them. You should share your life with them. You should share your children with them. You should share your finances with them. You should share your job, everything you have with them. That is attachment to a rabbi. That is attachment that we are speaking of. In the first century, there was nothing else but this attachment. How have we moved on from that? Because we are a product of our culture. We live in such a selfish society, we don't realize what we are doing. We live in such a gimme, gimme, gimme society that says, everything is for me. Everything is for me. My job is for me. My children are for me. My house is for me. My car is for me. See, these men prized the time when they can give everything up for their rabbis and consequently their teachers or their, their, their disciples. To speak even further on this, the Talmud enriches us with understanding. In a tractate called Bava Metzia 33a, just giving you the reference so you know I didn't just make it up. One finds... His father's lost item. Listen to me real close. If one finds his father's lost item and his teacher's lost item, tending to his teacher's lost item takes precedence. As his father brought him into this world and his teacher who taught him the wisdom of Torah brings him to life in the world to come. Our relationship with Jesus and our rabbis should overcome our relationship with our earthly fathers. That relationship is a gift to the earthly father because the teacher completes the earthly father's desire to see his son go further than he ever did. Fathers, do you want to see that? You want to see your sons go on further? I know I do. Your teacher will point you in the right direction. Fathers, rabbis will teach your sons how to honor you by going further than you ever did. I'm going to share a few more scriptures. We're going to close. Peyton, you can come up here. So you understand something. We have three pastors in this church and two elders. And many other men who are gifted in many other things. You have an opportunity in this church to attach yourself to someone and ultimately something. You have an opportunity to find your place like the prophecy that has been given to us this morning. You have that opportunity. But I know all of us have something in our lives that holds us back, that steals our devotion, that steals our consecration. Turn with me to Matthew 8, verse 18 through 22. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a bold statement, isn't it? Has anybody in this room said that before? Said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Then take that, then take that back for yourself. And make complete, null, and void what you have told to the men of God in this room? 
Have you spoken something? God told me this. God told me that. Told me to do this. Then you haven't done it? Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus spoke right at that man and said, Look, I don't have anything. As a matter of fact, I'm not even going to tell you where I'm going. I'm just going to tell you that if you want to follow after me, it requires everything. Requires everything that you have. Requires everything that you are. Time and time again, you will be required to sacrifice everything you have. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Lord, let me go take care of my family. Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Put your hand to the plow and do not turn back. Go let your family be what they're going to be and follow after me. I want to be with you. Jesus is giving these men the opportunity to follow after him, to learn from him, to take his yoke upon them. And excuses came. How many of us in this room are secretly holding on to excuses? An offense maybe. Something holding you back from opening up your affection to your teacher. Opening up your affection to your rabbi. Remember the passage where Jesus is sitting at a dinner feast. He begins to speak to them about discipleship. And one of the phrases I can remember more than any of of the others is all alike, they begin to make excuses. You have to realize that any but, ands, or if, is just an excuse. Jesus called to the sons of Zebedee and said, follow, and immediately they left their nets. Immediately they dropped everything to follow them. Immediately they attached themselves to Jesus and said, you are my one and only. You're my one desire. Everything I have is yours. As we close, I want to open up to Luke 2, 41 through 50. If you're in this room and struggling with false attachments, today is the day to get that right. Today is dedicated to devotion. Today is dedicated for you to devote yourselves and everything you have. Don't let fear creep in the way. Don't let what-ifs creep in the way. You devote yourself to, to your disciples, and I promise you, I promise you, Jesus said, if any man come to me, I will in no wise cast out. will in no way cast you out. You come to Jesus. You come to these rabbis. You come to these men and say, everything I have is yours. Just take it. There will be consequences. But they will be with you and you will be with them. Everyone in verse 41? It says, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. It's a good time of the year to go to Jerusalem. When Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. How old was Jesus? 12. 12 years old. It's pretty young, isn't it? Yeah, pretty young. And in all respects, that is pretty young. 
after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Don't insert any thoughts about their, <laughs> about their, t- their parenting there. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. They began looking for him among the relatives, and they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them. Now think about that for a second. They begin looking after him for about a day. They traveled on for about a day looking for him. How far away had they gone? And how long had he been lost? There was some time that went on between them leaving and them coming back. They must have gone a pretty long ways. When they found Jesus, he was in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Say, astonished. We're talking about Jesus here, the Son of God. We're talking about someone, if, if there is a pattern to follow, it's Him, isn't it? We're talking about someone, you could look at men and you could say, you know what, I reject that advice. You know what, I don't like the way you're doing that. I don't like your way of life. But you can't say that about Jesus. He is the model that we're supposed to become. He is the highest way of life that we can attain to. So whatever Jesus is doing, we have to take it as as an example for ourselves and ask ourselves, what lesson can I learn from this? Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. What was the response? How were they feeling about what Jesus did? They said, son, why have you treated us this way? What the heck are you doing that you have left us to go be with these men? Can any of you imagine that? Do you have parents? Do you have fathers? Or are you a father looking at your son and saying, why have you treated us this way? What are you doing? Why are you attaching yourselves to these rabbis in such a way? That makes me look embarrassed in front of everyone. Why have you treated us this way? And what was Jesus' response? Do you think he said sorry? Think Jesus apologized for a moment? Jesus says in verse 49, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know I had to be attached to the men that I am supposed to be attached to? Didn't you know that I have a higher, more superior, heavenly attachment that I have to fulfill? Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal example, looked right at his earthly parents and said, Don't you know that I have a, I have a higher attachment than you? Amen. In another example, they're looking for Jesus. People come and say, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. Jesus said, Who is my mother and my brother? It's he who does the will of God. Folks, we have to understand that attachment to the men of God in your lives, attachments to Jesus, should make every other attachment pale in comparison. So much that they look at you and say, why have you treated us like this? Your friends ought to be able to look at you and say, why have you treated us like this? You left us. 
Your parents should be able to look at you and say, why are you treating us like this? And you should be able to look back and say, I'm not treating you in no way, Mom. I'm not treating you in no other way, Father. But I have left for my rabbi. I have left the boat. I have left my nets to follow after him. Come on, do you want to do that? Do you want to attach yourself this morning? There's another perspective that we can glean from this. You see, Jesus' parents brought the Son of Man into the world. And Jesus' destiny was to bring all men into the next world. He had to transition from being discipled by his parents to be dis- being discipled by his heavenly father. And just be mindful, who did Jesus call his father right here in that example? The rabbis who were teaching. I'll say that again. Jesus' parents brought the son of man into the world, but his destiny was to bring all men into the next world. He had to transition from being discipled by his parents to being discipled by his heavenly father. If his parents held him back, they possibly could have, would have circumvented the salvation of the world. What will happen if you hold back the next generation of disciples from becoming who they are destined to be? What if you hold them back by your fears? What if you hold them back by your idolatry that these are my children? No one else's. Supposed to be taken care of by me and no one else. What will happen if you hold them back? What nations are hanging in the balance if you do not let those arrows fly? What will happen to you if you fail to be discipled? What will happen to you if you fail to attach yourselves to the men in this room? What will happen to the nations that you are destined to go to like we heard about this morning? Come on, the Spirit is urging us in this place. There are nations in our scope. There is the plan of God in our future. And we're marching forward. But we must be attached. Reminds me of a a Romanian pastor. The certain Romanian pastor was preaching at the time that communism was running rampant in Romania. A law was decreed that no one should be allowed to teach the Bible. He refused. He said, judge for yourselves whether or not it is right to obey God or men. That man continued to pastor. That man had a very young boy, very young child. And you see, the communists found out about the secret meetings they were holding in the woods, and they dragged this man off to prison. And this man spent, he was charged with 25 years and underwent so many beatings that well into his 60s, the scars, the marks were still evident on his physical body. You want to know what one of his greatest trials was? Wasn't there to raise his son. Son was just a young boy when his parents were taken away. What if his sons just left out Wondering, what happened to my father? What happened to my mother? His mother was in prison too. After a lengthy and extended time in prison, the parents got back from prison to be reunited with their son. And what they found surprised them, blessed them, 
Brought them greater joy than they could ever have imagined while they were in that cold, dark cell. They had found some of the other brothers had taken in that son and raised him to be a man of God. The father's name is Richard Wormbrand, and he, is, he and his son started Voice of the Martyrs. And now Voice of the Martyrs is bringing support to the persecuted around the world. Think about that for a second. What will happen if you attach yourself to Jesus and you let all other attachments die? What will happen in this room if you let your sons go? If you just say, look, I release you. Go follow after your rabbis. Guys, stand up.